0: Street Epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. Please follow me on Twitter at MagnaBosco or on Facebook and YouTube at MagnaBosco210. You can learn more about Street Epistemology at streetepistemology.com.
1: Dear Intellectonauts, Welcome to another episode of the Intellectual Explorers Club podcast. Today I'm going on an exploratory stroll with Anthony Magnabosco. Anthony is an advocate and promoter of the conversational modality called street epistemology, which, as you'll soon find out, is a technique to not necessarily determine uh, what someone's map of reality is, but how they came to establish their map of reality. I've been aware of the street epistemologist for a little over a year now and had a local practitioner, Ryan Castleman, come in and speak at the Intellectual Explorers Club here in Toronto. I really appreciate this technique and uh, that's not to say I completely uh, endorse it, but I think it's definitely worth uh, exploration for intellectually-minded individuals. As well, I think it's an interesting technique that uh, gives praxis, in a way, to some of the ethical and humanistic aspects of uh, atheism and the modern atheistic movement. Uh, As well, I wanted to just give a shout out to any street epistemologist listening to this episode. I'm looking to host something called the Anti-Debate here at the Intellectual Explorers Club. And I want one ideally between a practitioner of street epistemology and an apologist, a Christian apologist. So if you're either one of those, uh, and this idea of the anti bait intrigues you, you can reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is Peter and Limburg. Okay, with that being said, enjoy this exploratory stroll I had with Anthony. This is a club for lovers of Sophia, cartographers of the noosphere, anthropologists of memeplexes, addicts of insight porn, and rebels full of youquakes. We are not idealists or realists, theists or atheists, modernists or postmodernists, liberals or conservatives, progressivists or reactionaries. We may be a mix of all of these things, but first and foremost, We are Intellectual Explorers. Today, I'm exploring with Anthony Magnabosco. Before we begin, I'm going to anchor myself in an exploratory mindset via spoken affirmation. I, Peter, will engage in this dialogue with the spirit of exploration. My intention is not to agree or disagree, but to be a performative agnostic and understand my interlocutor's map of reality and possibly explore new territory together and joyfully appreciate what emerges.
0: That being said, Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I like what you just said about the map of reality, because I often mention that when I'm Running into people and asking them to select some sort of topic that we could talk about, something that they think is true, something that they think their map in their mind correlates with reality, and that was neat to hear you actually mention that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had a first question, but just to like inquire into that, uh, does that metaphor help people? Um, like- I, I'm not. That's a good question. I don't know if it helps people or it confuses them. Most people seem to get it. Uh, I, I, try to explain that I'm interested in, in talking to people about something that they think is true, something that, uh, you know, that I even go so far as to say that I think that people are building maps of reality. And I like to ask questions to see if the map holds up to, to, uh, the reality that you think is we are all experiencing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not sure if that actually confuses people or not. It doesn't seem to. Hmm. Cause like, uh. You know, sometimes uh, um, we were talking
1: uh, before this about being socially calibrated, which we'll get into, but uh, sometimes I use different language when I'm talking to different people. And then I find that the map of reality is more uh, an intellectual geeky term that, you know, uh, resonates with some people, but doesn't resonate with others.
0: Mm -hmm. Quite possibly. I I do try to mix it up. So I don't always use that line. It's sort of just what pops in my head at the moment, but I have used that enough where if you watch some of my videos, you might actually notice me saying that. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, before uh,
1: we 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 skyped in and then now we're we're talking here. Before that, I was reading um, the the guide, the street epistemologist guide. Uh, I read it before, but I wanted to, to brush up on it. And I was wondering, and I know you said this in in one of your YouTube videos as well, uh, if you can give like an elevator pitch on what street epistemology is. And for the audience, the idea of an elevator pitch is to explain an idea in a way that someone can can grok it in a
0: very short period of time as if they were in an elevator ride together. All right. Well, my elevator pitch tends to change every time I give it. But uh, I guess today, if you were to ask me what you have, I would say that street epistemology is a way of having a conversation with a person where you're generally asking questions about their view, about their position, about something that they're sure is true in a friendly way where you're in a way working with them to figure out how they concluded that it's true we're interested in the method that they used. Yes we want to understand what you believe is true and why you think it's true and yet it's the it's the process that you're that you're using to conclude that those reasons are solid that's what I'm that we're, that's kind of what what we're really interested let me sorry kind of goof that up <laughs> that's kind of what we're interested in when we have these discussions is the method.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I like that. And, and going back to the the map of the map of reality territory, it's like, yes, you want to know their map of reality, but you want to know their how their cartographers, for example, what's their method
0: of of creating that map? Um, exactly. And usually, when I mention that, people do understand it, and it seems like they are eager to participate. Uh, perhaps even curious. Oh, this is interesting. I. I I don't actually think anyone's ever asked me this before. Let's go ahead and have a talk. So most people Hmm. aren't usually scared off by it, but they seem rather intrigued and generally agree to participate. So there's, um, I guess, two two roads we can go down right now.
1: Um, And I really want to, I guess, my desire is to give the the audience uh, like a one on one on a street epistemology uh, before maybe we explore into kind of a different territory. And I guess there's two roads we can go down: it is the the why of street epistemology, and then the how. And I'm wondering if you have uh, an intuition of which one we should go down
0: first. Well, to be clear, are you asking uh, me why I would actually participate in it, and how one would go about doing it, or are you referring to what we sort of dubbed the stages of a street epistemology conversation, where we're interested in the what, why, and the how? Yeah, I guess
1: what I meant by that is, so the how is sort of like the the method itself, you know, like how to engage in a conversation, um, how to ask questions, um, you know, certain techniques like the outsider effect or oh, you know, right. outsider test. And then the why is sort of, I guess, the, the ethical reason of why you or one should be engaging in street epistemology.
0: Great. Yeah, absolutely. We can definitely jump into those. Uh, would you like me to just to start with the why, do you think? Sure. Okay. Well, uh, and this is not a dodge, but I do think that the why somebody should consider participating in this will probably differ. The answer that you receive will probably differ from every person that is familiar with street epistemology that you were to ask this to. But for myself, I, I think it's critical that we try to believe as many true things as possible and I think our society would be better if most people believe true things and strived to believe true things. That's really the base of my of my motivation, why I want to go out and initiate talks with people. The, the why for myself has also changed a little bit. I also want to show people examples of how to do this because I've had a lot of conversations where people have reflected on their process And they've even backed off of their certainty, even discarded beliefs that are probably not true. That I think is extremely valuable. And I also think it's valuable to show people how this is done. Approach it as if this is a tool set that anyone can learn and and perform whenever they want to, even on the beliefs that they hold themselves. So that's a that's a huge motivation. That's the reason why. But I do suspect that if you were to ask other people why they think. Somebody should learn street epistemology, or, um, or promote it, or anything along those lines. I, I think you might get different answers. Hmm.
1: Um, this is uh, so when I my experience of, uh, I guess for the audience, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a practitioner of street epistemology. Um, I've watched a few videos on it and I had uh, invited a guest speaker to come in at Intellectual Explorers Club. So, you know, I'm somewhat familiar with it. Uh, But just to kind of uh, speak on my experience when watching some of these videos, uh, first, uh, I'm very appreciative of the sort of the the technique and the structure of the method. But there is a sort of like a a sadness sometimes when I watch it and I don't really know why. Um, And I guess there's... um, just to take a stab at why that uh, maybe it's a concern as well is that if you plant some doubt or disabuse somebody of um, their belief by kind of uh, shaking their their methodology towards that belief, um, that could lead to some sort of existential crisis or, or, or whatever. Uh, cause from my experience, and this is, I mentioned this in my last podcast with Michael Millerman, and This is not a value judgment, but a lot of people just don't desire the examined life or don't have the time for it or don't see the need for it. So, um, I wonder if, uh, if anything I said there, you know, caught your, caught your
0: attention and if you have any comments on that. Yeah, for sure. Uh. There, there is some sadness, there is, a, there is an element of sadness, I think, in these discussions uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, when you mentioned the S word there, sadness, I, I was immediately thinking that it's that it could be sad to see people who may have been on this planet for 80 years and never examined why they think that there's a higher power or some other deeply held belief that's core to who they are. Hmm. I find that extremely sad. The other side of that, I suppose, is yes, it can be difficult for a person to recognize that they might be believing something that's core to their identity that's not true. It could be a real challenge. It could there could be a cost, even especially if your job is based on thinking that this is true, or you have family and friends you have a you have a whole community around you because you think that this thing is true. Um. And there are people who don't value truth. That was a huge shock to me when I went out and and you might be five or 10 minutes into a talk and then the person just sort of throws their hands up and says, I, I just don't see the value in all this. It doesn't really matter that I want this to be true. Who are you to say that I can't believe anything that I want to believe? And sometimes they pause at and, and they're shocked at the words that they just said, and other times they stand by them. But it doesn't happen too often, honestly. Most people, when I, when I run into them, it does seem like they value truth, that they do want to believe true things, and that even if there's a cost, that they're at least willing to entertain the possibility and explore a deeply held belief like that with somebody using this approach.
1: Mm-hmm
0: you know, the first thing that came to my, my mind when you said that,
1: and um, is about truth, right? So, and I, I don't want to get into like a, a heavy definition of um, of what truth is. We'll go down that Peterson Harrison road, but uh, like for, for, I guess we're both operating right now when we're using that word is sort of like the correspondence theory of truth, where there's a, a, a reality out there and then our models accurately map over that reality. Yes. Um, And when, when, and I'll just be honest, like, I don't have a, like a, a, a great desire for truth or a hunger for truth, like mm-hmm. a, for intrinsic desire, I should say, but instrumentally, I value it, right? And I imagine if, if I'm somebody who's intellectually curious and engaging in all this stuff, if I don't have that kind of like that raw desire for it, I imagine a lot of people don't as well. Um, so... What, what do you think about that, this this kind of like a, this distinction between having a desire for truth and understanding the instrumental value for truth?
0: Well, it's, I'm a little surprised to hear that that you might not, and maybe I'm just misunderstanding what you're saying, but um, no, in my experience, most people that I do talk to, especially when you start asking questions to reveal the deeply held belief and and you start talking about what actually truth is. I, I don't even assume that I, the person that I'm speaking to is using the same definition of truth. Hmm. Uh, the thing that I tend to get hung up on with people, and we've actually, over the five or six years that people have been doing this, we've been experimenting with different approaches, is I see a lot of confusion between this. Uh, when, when people th- say the word truth or they're thinking of the word truth, they tend to confuse this idea of objective truth with a subjective opinion or even a um, a preference or something along those lines. That tends to be more of a sticking point than finding people that don't value truth. The, I tend to get more hung up on with people. Um, and maybe this is more, maybe this maybe happens more on the West Coast than, I, I don't know, I'm noticing it everywhere, but people tend to say, what's the harm in believing something that's not true? I should have a right to believe Anything that I want, uh, maybe as long as it's not harming people, what's the big deal? In fact, I just uploaded a conversation with a woman who was kind of going along those along those lines. Um, it doesn't take long, though, it seems, t- for a person to discover that they probably do value truth. They mm-hmm. probably are putting on a seatbelt because they think that they could probably die if they were to get hit by a car. They don't tend to act it out to the extreme levels, thinking that truth isn't. Uh, isn't important.
1: Hmm. Um, there's a couple of questions I want to inquire um, with the the why the why aspect of street epistemology, but it might be um, better if it was grounded in the how first. Uh, so maybe you could walk through a listener who had no knowledge of what a and a street epistemological
0: approach would look like, and how does one like ideally conduct it and go about it? For sure. For sure. I'd, lo- I'd love to do that. And let me just couch this. Let me just, at the very start, just like people might have different reasons why they go out and do this, there may be variations in the approach. So this isn't the one and only way to do SE. I might even forget some steps or in in five years, we might be cringing because I forgot to mention certain things that, that are suddenly now more important. But generally, using street epistemology can't really begin until you have two willing parties and a claim. Okay. So at least two willing parties, I've actually interviewed three or four or five people at the same time, and you can do that. It's a little bit harder, but you absolutely want to have consent from both parties that, Hey, I want to take a claim that you think is true and ask you questions to see what are your reasons and how did you determine that those are good reasons? And uh, whenever I meet somebody on the street or organically and these things come up, I try to at least let them know what they're in for. So once that's out of the way and you actually have isolated a claim, and sometimes you meet people who they just throw claim after claim after claim, try to figure out what claim are you actually talking about, and then spend a little bit of time defining your terms. What do they mean by the word true? What do they mean by the word God, for example? or any other suitcase words that might need to be unpacked. You can do that at any point in the conversation, but the sooner that you can do it, when you notice these terms that might be confusing, the better. So establishing what the person believes, I guess would probably be like the first phase. This could possibly include getting a sense of how sure a person is that their belief is true on a scale from one to 10 or zero to 100. Completely optional, completely subjective, And yet it does seem helpful to get a sense of how sure a person thinks that their belief is actually true. It it could be a little shocking when you're talking to a priest or something like that. And they say, I'm roughly 40% sure that there's a higher power. Sometimes you get some surprises. Uh, The second, I suppose, overarching stage of this is to establish what are the real reasons why the person thinks that what they think is true is really true? This, this is sort of the the justification or the why stage. And many times the the first or second or third, or even fourth, many times the reasons that a person gives why they think something is true isn't often the real reason. And one simple way that you can, you can make sure that you're talking about what needs to be talked about is to uh, ask a person why do you think it's true and then ask them if that reason wasn't in the mix if they came to discover that that was a poor reason would their confidence in the belief being true fluctuate at all mm. so if they say well yeah I, my my i, I drop like to a two percent out of ten if I discovered that that was true great you are now talking about the re a big reason why they think this is true but many times people will say oh no I would still be I would still be just as confident that this is true. There's another reason propping it up. Keep repeating that process essentially until you can figure out what the real reason is. Once you have the the reason, you can now move to the third phase. And I'm laying this out like it's like boom, boom, boom. You do this, and it's really simple. But sometimes in the natural flow of conversations, sometimes you're bouncing back and forth between these levels. It doesn't usually go this smoothly. Um, Sometimes it does. Sometimes you get lucky, and you're just sailing through it. The third phase, and it's Hmm. This isn't even the final phase. There's other phases here too. But the third phase would be ex- exploring the the how, exploring the method or how they determined that that reason is sufficient for the confidence that they specified that their view is true. And then you can start asking questions. Well, could I use that same method or process and arrive at a different conclusion? Something that, that would contradict what you think is true. And if so, it could be an indication that the method that they're using is not reliable. Sometimes, especially when you're talking about a supernatural claim like a ghost existing, the law of attraction, karma being real, that there's a higher power, very often that's usually when a person will mention that they have faith that it's true. This was a big premise behind street epistemology originally when, when the author said, hey, this is a great tool to talk to people about God. Okay, atheists, are you listening up? use this tool. And practitioners like myself realized very quickly that we could be using this for other things. However, so when you are talking about supernatural things, faith as a method does usually tend to come up. And then um, you kind of explore the reliability of that method. And if if it seems like it's unreliable, you revisit the confidence. And very often a person will, at the very least, Show an indica- give an indication that they're they're really thinking about things and possibly even backing off of their certainty. That could that could very likely be uh, be an outcome of this. There are other stages too, which might include documenting what's happening, being there for them if they really do find themselves struggling with this view being challenged, and other things too. Sharing your discussion with other groups so that other other people can be learning from it, that type of thing. But in a nutshell. That's the how. That's how one might go about doing this street epistemology stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to the first step, one thing that might be
1: tricky uh, is is coming to terms, right? So if you if you're searching for that claim, and then you say that uh, okay, what's something that you deeply uh, believe to be true, and they uh, say God, um, and then unpacking what they mean by God first, like asking, okay, what do you, what do you mean by God Define that or whatever kind of other, other uh, sticky terms that come up? Um, Is there, is there sort of like a technique to engage in that?
0: Or you just ask, well, I I don't know if I call it a technique, but I mean, it's really important to figure out what they mean by the words. So when somebody says, I believe God exists, one of the first things I'll do, and you have to be a little careful with this because asking a person, well, which God specifically are we talking about here? Sometimes people can be a little bit offended by that. Like, what do you mean? It's obviously it's Jesus, or it's it's obviously Allah, or something along those lines. But most people roll with it. They know that we're in a culture where people people believe in different things. But yes, absolutely. Ask just simply ask a person, "Do you mind if we define that term? Which God specifically might we be talking about here?" And notice the word, the usage of the word "we." you want to try to approach this as like a partnership. Let's, let's, let's figure out what exactly you think is true. Let's get all of our terms worked out. And on the, on the topic of terms, I'm completely willing to accept a person's definition of the word God or faith or miracle or ghost or anything along those lines for the purpose of the conversation, even though it doesn't jive necessarily with my view. Yes, it doesn't really help anybody out if we're talking past each other and not using the 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 right terms, the the uh, the the understood terms. So I will adopt the terms of my interlocutor for the purpose of the conversation.
1: Right, right. It's like uh, it's interesting because you know that um, if you ask that question uh, about uh, like, oh, what do you mean by God? But if you ask in a certain Mm -hmm. way, it could almost trigger the person's like tribalism, like,
0: oh, this person's not a part of my tribe. If you, you know. (laughs) And that can go multiple ways too. Somebody might say, ah, they're not part of my tribe, but I can get them up to be a part Uh, of my tribe. Like Here's an opportunity (laughs) to bring them into my, into my religion. I I did a really good breakdown video with some folks that were ex-Mormons and I'd met a Mormon couple and I didn't really catch it at the time, but as they were listening to it and talking about. About the conversation from their perspective, they were. It was very clear to them that my Mormon interlocutor was looking at this as an opportunity to to educate me on the truthness of his claim, so that he could perhaps invite me to church or something along those lines. Mm-hmm.
1: And in those situations, when somebody is, um, you know, quite knowledgeable in their their belief system, uh, how do those interactions go down?
0: It could be a little challenging this is a dangerous question because it could give the impression that i'm saying street epistemology is better when you're talking to a person who's not well versed in the doctrine and that's not what i'm about to say here you can talk to anybody using this approach whether they're they've studied this this topic for any topic for 30 years or they're just new to it or they're a casual believer or they're they're a professional believer and anything else in between but what tends to happen is when a person is well versed in their in their doctrine. Like they've been a pagan for 30 years. They know all the, I don't know, the incantations. Maybe the pagan isn't, is it the pagans? Yeah, do they have spells? I think pagans have spells. I'm using them as an example. So I'm not just picking on Christians here. But typically, what tends to happen is people get wrapped up in their doctrine. That's exactly what happened with this Mormon fellow. He understood his Book of Mormon really true in the Bible, and he kept wanting to pull up verses. When, if you remember my what, why, how, overview there we we have a cursory underst- a cursory interest in exactly what you think is true yes we want to understand what it is you' you're claiming and your confidence and what you mean by these terms and yet it's the it's the justifications and the method that you're using that we're most interested in and when you have a, a knowledgeable believers or something along those lines they tend to really be in they tend to want to tell you what you what they know. Mm-hmm. What they've been told, what they think is true, when, as a practitioner of street epistemology, I think we're we're really more interested in process and reasons and and that could be a little bit of a challenge, I suppose.
1: one thing that you said in the beginning of our conversation, which deeply resonated with me, is uh, the why of the street epistemology in in my kind of like uh, Read of it, people to that uh, examined life um, because we talked about sadness and you said it's sad that you know more people don't want to examine their life um, and then going back to these these this distinction between being well-versed in your belief system and not well-versed it's like the people uh and maybe i'm wrong here but this is my read but the people who are less well-versed in their belief system have that openness to be seduced while people who are more versed, are, there's less openness. And this, I guess, lends itself to that, that terminology that you guys like to use, uh, doxastic openness versus doxastic
0: closeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I don't know if you, a person's understanding of doctrine relates, if there's a correlation between uh, the amount a person knows on the topic and their openness or, or willingness to change. I've been doing this for a while, and I, I really wouldn't feel comfortable saying that. Oh yeah, the more a person knows about their holy book, the more closed they're going to be. That doesn't really seem to be the case to me, because mm-hmm. if you if you have to kind of keep in mind that we really aren't interested in in the what; it's the why and the how. And most people, even if you study this stuff for, for 20, 30 years, you're an expert in this topic. You probably haven't spent a whole heck of a lot of time asking yourself, why do I really think that this is true? And how can I be so sure that that's a good reason? How did I validate that, that conclusion? How did I validate that reason to see it, if it holds the weight of this belief? So it could be a little bit disarming. To a person, especially somebody who's well studied in it, I suppose, uh, when they they meet somebody asking questions that they they've probably never been asked before, and you know another thing too. Talking about like knowing the topic as a practitioner of the method, I found that that if a person is really well versed in the Quran, for example, but they no longer believe it, maybe, and now they're engaging with somebody using this method. Who does think that the Quran is true? It could be really tempting for that practitioner of street epistemology to be pulling up verses to contradict what the person is saying or something, because they're so well they're so well versed in the verses. And that could be a, a disadvantage in some cases if you know too much about the doctrine.
1: So there's just so many like uh, tree branches we can go down, but I kind of want to focus still on the method a little bit and some of the. The techniques that popped out to me when I was reading the, the guide. And uh, yeah, you said something in one of the videos I watched, which I thought was great. Uh, there's this thing that you guys call a spider on the ceiling, um, which maybe you can unpack in a moment. But- uh, and you said in the video when somebody was – you you got somebody thinking about something. You can tell that they were really deeply thinking about it and uh, you were training somebody who was on the law of attraction. And then he jumped in right away and you're like, don't step on that pause. <laughs> Marinate that pause, right? So i so glad like, you wow. watched that example. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. So could you speak on that that, that spider on the ceiling moment?
0: For sure. Yes. This, this might be cultural. This might be uh, – a thing that most humans tend to do, or, or there might be some areas where we don't do this, but generally, when you ask somebody a question and they take some time to think about it, especially if it's a sensitive question and that's really seems to be challenging them, and they even might even seem to be struggling a little bit, we tend to feel awkward for them and want to interject and give them an out. Like, oh, that's okay. Do you want me to rephrase the question? Or, um, and we might even offer another question because we, we, we're we feeling for them. We don't like to see a person feel uncomfortable. And yet when we're doing street epistemology, reaching a point where a person is really thinking about what you've just asked them is kind of a big part of it. So you could be shooting yourself in the foot when you interrupt somebody thinking about the question that you just asked or... Um, You know, really, really like, like you said, like looking up at the ceiling, looking up at the sky, because they've never really thought about what you just asked them before. And we send, we seem to have a tendency to want to step on those pauses when it could really be one of the worst things that you can do during these conversations in my view.
1: Right, right. And uh, there's another term that um, really spoke out to me. is the outsider tests or this this technique and and this strikes me as a sort of like a, a kill shot <laughs> technique in a way um can you speak on that a little bit
0: yeah the outsider test for faith is is something that is probably in most people's arsenal who who conduct street epistemology it's a term that was coined by John W Loftus he's an author he's written several books and the idea here is when you encounter somebody who really thinks something is true, you can ask them if, they've, if they're have if they open to taking a look at that and being critical of it, as if somebody who didn't think that what they thought was true, but maybe something completely different, uh, they thought that, that's kind of confusing. I don't know. It, it, this isn't, I'm not, not kind of laying this out very well, but so the outsider test for faith is. A way of asking a person a question to see if they would be willing to be equally as critical of the view that they hold as they might be for somebody who holds a view that that contradicts what they think is true. And I, <laughs> I have a short video on my channel where I've asked this question to one guy. You know, do you have the ability to be just as skeptical of their claim uh, as your claim as you are of theirs? And he paused for a good. 10 seconds and said, no. (laughs) And that was a, Mm -hmm. that was a nice little fun reveal. But most people are willing to entertain this idea. And they acknowledge that there are other people who think completely different gods than theirs are true, for example, and asking them how one might be able to tell which of the two of them actually has a correct, like this person thinks that their holy book is true and you seem to think that your holy book is true. How do you think somebody who's looking at the both of you might be able to figure out who really has it correct? You might very well get a spider moment out of that, and it could it could launch a person on a huge, you know, a journey towards even abandoning a belief if they can't find a a good answer to that question.
1: Right, right, and uh, I haven't watched. Um... Too much uh, videos. I just watch mostly of yours, but every time I see that the outsider test being done, it usually engenders the the spider on the ceiling moment, um, and it really it strikes me as, as as a method that really gets at the crux at the epistemic methodology.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, for sure it does, and yeah, you will notice a lot, uh, and it doesn't. You don't have to just use the outsider test for faith. On faith claims or, or supernatural claims, uh, I met a woman on the trail who, she was saying something like the stock market always drops when a particular party is in office. Uh, you can you can say well, <laughs> very easily, if I met somebody else who said the same thing about the, about a completely different party, and they were using your same method, how do you think we can tell who who has it right? Yeah, it very well often lead to a person thinking about things and maybe reevaluating their certainty. That what they think is true is really true. It's a very powerful tool. I'd highly recommend it. Hmm. But it'd be good maybe to have like a, I don't know if you already have it, but have like a montage of every
1: time you ask that question and it leads to a, a spider moment.
0: <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got several hundred videos on my channel now. And, and some people say, when are we going to get some sort of montage video of people in those spider moments, those spider ceiling moments, or, or when you ask them a, a question like that, maybe one day.
1: Yeah. So, if anybody listening wants to help Anthony out with okay. the, the video editing, okay. uh, feel free to reach out.
0: Love that. That'd be great.
1: <laughs> um, so, I, I want to also touch on the, the backfire effect, which might um, uh, position nicely to the, the socially calibrated question I want to ask you. But um, it's like, I guess maybe explain what the backfire is, effect is at first, and I have a few questions to follow up.
0: Yeah. So, when I started uploading videos of me asking all these questions, to a largely atheist audience and hearing uh, you know, somebody on the college campus say that the reason that they think their God is true is because Christianity is the oldest religion and ju- being jumped on in the comments, like how could you possibly let that go and not give him evidence to show that there are older religions? So I'm intentionally not, giving people facts if they're not ready for that. Uh, It it could be kind of tough to, it it would seem natural. Hey, all I need to do is give this person a link to show that Hinduism is far older than Christianity and he's going to change his mind, right? No, it doesn't Mm -hmm. usually work that way, especially if the person isn't coming to their conclusion because that's, that's the reason that they're, that if they say that that's the reason it's really not the reason, it makes no sense to spend all that time convincing them that that view is incorrect. So the backfire effect is this, this observation that when you give people evidence that shows that they're mistaken, they might accept it, but it doesn't usually change their view or their attitude towards the, the belief. Or they might even ignore the belief, uh, they might even ignore the evidence that you've provided to them. And it might even be worse, where the person might even be more adamant that what they think is true is true, even though you've shown them evidence that they're mistaken. And that's the backfire part of this. And And the backfire effect was a huge motivation behind street epistemology. It was the recognition that mm. we need to approach these folks, uh, and everybody, including ourselves, In a slightly different way. We can't just come hard and heavy with facts and, and perhaps even ridicule that we need to, we need to take it a little bit slower and figure out by asking questions, what's really driving this belief. Hmm. It's like, um, Hmm.
1: So I have this uh, this buddy of mine here in Toronto. Uh, we used to belong to this like rigorous debate club. And uh, for lack of a better term, I guess you could say he's one of the, like the, he belongs to the new atheist tribe. Uh, his main intellectual influences were Richard Dock and Sam Harris. And he's like one of the most combative persons, uh, people I've ever met Um any kind of belief that strikes him as uh, supernatural or superstitious, he just goes at the person and there's, um, and he, he fully admits this. There's a stench of arrogance about the way he goes about it too. Um, And it just turns people off. And then when we were inquiring into like the reason behind that, and he was quite open and honest about it is that there's like an anger that he has towards religious people. And it stemmed um, maybe, you know, the, past experiences he had as his youth when his parents sort of used religious explanations just to shut him up. Um, And so as somebody who is engaging or wants to engage in street epistemology and believes the cause and stuff, and they come across these, uh, you know, they come across people with with, uh, religious or superstitious beliefs, and then that anger occurs, do you have any thoughts on that or
0: any recommendations on how to mitigate that? Yeah, that's a very good question. and. I can definitely relate to that because I had that anger when I was coming to grips with my atheism, and when I abandoned the belief, even though it was a, it was a long time coming. Like I, I guess I was always an atheist, but didn't really public publicly recognize it. And then you start seeing the harm. People do tend to lash out at other believers because we're angry. We're we, we feel like um, we were lied to, and generally that's the case we feel like the people who we trusted the most lied to us and we can still see them trapped in those those boxes and it can be really frustrating so that coupled with the idea that we think oh i just need to show them that they're mistaken that's that's a horrible combination uh, and and it's it, i've jeopardized relationships with my family and friends because of my my harsh approach it's still hard for me to hold back and not ridicule something. Um, hmm. Even today, even after seeing all the successes that that people are having including myself with street epistemology, it's hard to hold that back, but if, if you want to help this person, help anybody, consider abandoning a belief that you, that's probably not true, especially if you're having one-on-one interactions with them and you value those relationships, then Debating with a person and arguing with them and ridiculing them is probably not the best way. Now, you had mentioned that your friend does debates. There is a place that has a great venue to be arguing with your opponent. You're up on a stage, people are watching, it's being it's being recorded, for example, and thousands will be observing that conversation. That could be that could be extremely powerful for someone to be passively observing those interactions and they're safe. They're in their chair, they're they're behind a computer screen. They could be really thinking about what you're saying, but when it's a one-on-one people become defensive and that's really doesn't seem like it's the best approach. And that's, that's what excites me so much about street epistemology, this approach of asking Socratic questions because it, uh, it really seems to help a person slow down in a one-on-one situation, reflect on their belief and even back off of their certainty in most, in, in some cases. Right. Right. And, um, I want. To, I want to
1: briefly inquire into uh, something you said, um, and feel free to swat it away if if it, if you think this risks turning into like a, a therapy session. But sure. when you when you mentioned that um, even you, somebody who you know was really good at this stuff, with that, that kind of that anger bubbles up, um, and some people like my friend, it is just very evident he can't even control it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that anger comes forth?
0: Well, I think I touched on it a little bit. I think we we it's it's hard to see people that you love and, and your friends and family that uh struggling and perhaps they don't even they don't even know, realize that they're struggling with it or they're making decisions that are harming other people because they think that th- this thing is true it could be really tough to observe that when you're on the outside looking in um that might be you know, what's, what's sort of driving that, that anger, like usually that anger is coming from a place of love. I'm getting Mm -hmm. frustrated because I want to help them so much, but I don't know how to do it. And the thing that I'm trying doesn't seem to be working. What's going on? It's, it's neat. Um, I get a lot of messages from people who are observing videos or reading the street epistemology guide, like you mentioned. And the method does seem to be changing the practitioners in a really good way. Yes, it's excellent for challenging a person's claim, and yet it also seems to be really beneficial from uh, the, the the practitioner. Even though I might still struggle with it, uh, it's definitely improved my interactions with people. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, something that we were talking about
1: uh, before we went live, is uh, like, like I got to compliment you because I think you were like – extremely socially calibrated uh, individual just from watching your videos and, and and talking with you uh you know via skype we talked in the past um and you know i, I myself i take like dale carnegie courses uh toastmaster acting courses and i read all these books because i was i was super shy and had, had social anxiety when i was younger and i feel like i'm at a point where i'm pretty socially calibrated and it It's interesting because I I watched some older videos that you showed in a lecture where you were just sort of like almost shouting at somebody who, um, you know, uh, was like a street preacher. And then just seeing you transform from that guy to who you are now is fascinating. And so the the thought dawned on me like, wow, the street epistemology um, method not only helps one refine their their sort of their intellectual approach, but also
0: helps them become a more socially calibrated human being. Quite possibly. Like I've definitely noticed – a change in the way that I interact with people. You you had mentioned this idea of being socially calibrated many years ago when I was, when I was a little kid, I had uh, extreme anxiety. Um, Even when I was in college, giving a speech or something terrified me. It it was, it was really tough for me to speak in public. And the, the the idea of walking up to a stranger to initiate a chat on a deeply held belief would just seem terribly frightening. I should mention, uh, I probably should have done this at the start. You don't have to initiate chats with strangers to be doing street epistemology. Most people who use this approach are using it when a topic organically comes up. For example, um, so. But yes, I, I do sort of an initiated approach, and yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if it's because it's the method, or because I've just interacted with so many people, or a combination of the two, or other factors. It's hard to really say, but. I do find it rather easy to talk to people, to help them feel comfortable, to reassure them that I'm not going to argue with them, even though we might be talking about something that we disagree on. Uh, I can generally stay calm and focused. Uh, In fact, Mm -hmm. I I wrote a blog post. There's two blog posts that I wrote that might be useful for people listening to this. Uh, One is how to stay calm and focused when using street epistemology, and then the other one is... What is it? Um, using street epistemology with loved ones; those might be two really good blog posts to uh, for your audience to um, mm-hmm. to look up if they get a chance. But yeah, um, I guess the realization that most people haven't checked their maps that that is kind of a humbling thing, and you, in a way, you sort of develop empathy for people, uh, including yourself. You start to realize I don't really know a lot of the things that I think that I know, (laughs) and it can be very humbling. And once you discover that most other people seem to also be in that boat, I don't know. It just there's something about that discovery that makes it a lot easier to talk to people. Mm, That's
1: that's a really great point uh, about the maps, and um, something came to mind as well. Like uh, I teach. uh, interpersonal skill workshop here at the, the University of Toronto. And then uh, most of the, my students are, are like students, right? Like a University of Toronto students. And the questions that they ask me, it's like uh, adorable. It's like these general questions that like, what do you do in this situation? And this situation applies to all aspects, like these social situations. Um, and there's like no context or nuance in that question. And there's something in, in, uh, in the social skill literature called trip, right? It's like you got to be, when you're interacting with somebody, you got to be sensitive to the timing, the relationship, the intention, your intention and their intention and the place, right? So you got to be sensitive to the context and that really kind of transforms how you're going to interact if you're sensitive to that. And it strikes me that uh, that trip is baked in to the epistemological method that you guys use. Um, and I can see, I don't know if it's true or not, but I can see if you practice this method, uh, faithfully, it could, that, that
0: could kind of transfer to other, other social arenas. I think it very well could. Um, like I'm not in the dating scene anymore, but I would, I would say like, <laughs> if I had to start dating or meeting people, it would probably be a heck of a lot easier to start chats up with people and to really listen to what they're saying and gently push back in a way that would be to both of our benefit. So there, there seems to be some really good advantages to this approach far beyond just uh, you know, helping a person think about their map and maybe changing their confidence and some of the benefits that we talked about for the practitioner. So, I would love to see people who are in in the press, for example, using more of this approach and maybe even working in coordination. So, I've given this example before. So. Hopefully this isn't too repetitive, but like if, if you're at a press conference with the president, and and the first reporter asks a question, it would be great if the second, third, fourth, and fifth could ask questions that built off of the first one to really drive yeah, down yeah. to what is really true. I think that would be so useful. Where that could be modeled by some of the some of the most visible people in our society. I would love to see that. Um, I would love to see this being taught to kids. It's a it's a skill. It's a technique. I guess that. That should really be taught in an early age and continued throughout our lifetimes
1: that's very interesting that you say that because, you know, I I host uh, local meetings on Intellectual Explorers Club and we meet and um, so many people are talking past each other, right? And when we're having a group conversation and somebody makes a point, then somebody is like, they were just waiting for that person to finish so that they can make a totally unrelated point, right? (laughs) Um, And there's this technique in improv uh, called yes and, right? Where you acknowledge, you say something um, about the reality of what somebody said. You don't necessarily have to agree with it, but just understand some aspect of it. It, and then add something to it um but mo- most people are not even doing yes and they're just sort of like going no and mm-hmm. or no but they're waiting um, for the
0: person to finish so that they can go in a completely different direction and one yeah, thing that i think yeah. people will notice when they're watching a conversation or observing something happening over text is that there is a lot of yes ending, like oh i see I think you're saying this, is that correct? And they might acknowledge that that's what they're saying. And then you could ask a good question that's built, that builds off of your understanding all the while you're driving down to the foundation of that, of that pyramid of what, why, how, where, where the method or the how is at the bottom. And yeah, that's, that's really important. And people like to be listened to. People will open up more. People will tend to be more honest with you. If you, you seem to be steel manning their view, you seem to be striving to understand them and not misrepresent them. You're repeating back what you think you're hearing so that they can correct you. These are all skills that go far beyond street epistemology. These these are things that that we really need to start seeing regularly in society. This is one of the reasons why I think once a person discovers this approach, they tend to be really enamored with it and they want to take it in exciting new directions and and promote it as much as they can and even push back and challenge it and it's really neat to see Mm -hmm.
1: and um yeah yeah i like that a lot because when i uh when i discovered it like i don't know like um uh, like i need to learn more about it so i'm not like an advocate of it or anything like that nor am i like a huge critic of it but it's like it's caught my attention right and that's why i wanted you on the podcast to talk about it and explore it a little bit more um and to to speak on what you said I really like that because even if you're like a sloppy cartographer even if you're like a sloppy at like understanding somebody else's map but if you have that spirit of understanding behind trying to figure out their map people can feel that you know um, and to me it's like maybe it's an act of love or something I don't know but it's just disarming that 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 spirit of understanding
0: yeah I think one of the most human things that we can do is to show respect for people even though we might disagree with them and think that they're wrong giving them the benefit of the doubt, listening to them, and and gently challenging them by asking questions and pushing back. I think helping a person take another look at a view and possibly even abandoning that belief if it's not true could be one of the most generous and giving and human things, like I mentioned, uh, things that we can possibly do. Mm -hmm.
1: I wanted to ask you about the, the taxonomy of sort of like the beliefs you come across. But before I do that, is there anything else you want to uh, mention about the actual method
0: of uh, the approach? There's so many things that I can talk about the approach. Uh, usually, the mechanics of, of street epistemology are not very difficult to grasp. I, I outline them very quickly in about three minutes there. Um, but practicing it and putting, in, putting it into play and interacting with people can be a lot, be much more challenging, especially if you are struggling with that anger, like we talked about. Typically, the biggest obstacle to becoming successful in this approach is your own bias and ego and attitude towards the topic and other people. So, if you can come to grips with that by perhaps reading one of those blog posts that I mentioned, for example, uh, you will probably become really good at this. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I might want to add is that. It does seem to be effective in helping a person lower their confidence in something that they think is true, even something that's very tied to who they are. And I do think that we have an obligation to be available to them, not to keep pushing them in a direction or, or, or throwing more doubt on top of their doubt, but to be there for them as a person because they might really be struggling with the questions that you've asked. Be there for them. Uh, you you might have to direct them to su- to some support resources or or take a day off of work to be with them because they're really struggling with these with these questions that you've asked. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not just a sort of a hit and run type of thing. You really do have to be there for folks uh, for the entire process, I suppose.
1: It's like um, like grounding yourself in a certain uh, level of responsibility if you're going to engage in this this technology.
0: It, it does seem like this is something that uh, you have to be careful with. I, I can literally have a conversation with somebody and five minutes later, their, their entire world, worldview could be sh- shooken up. That could very, very easily happen. And once you discover that you start to take another look at your motivations. Why am I doing this? What is, what are my goals here? How much time t- can I really dedicate to a person that might really start to struggle? And, and then, uh, yeah, it, that's, that's, that's one of the challenges I suppose that comes with this approach. Yeah, yeah. So, like,
1: um, you know, I wrote this uh, white paper on the, the culture war. Yeah. Um, and we had this spreadsheet of like, a, sort of like a taxonomy of, of like what I like to call uh, philosophies in the wild or mean plexes in the wild right now. Right. And we try to be most charitable to understand them on their own terms and all that type of stuff. Um, so my question is for you, when you when you like your wealth of experience in this stuff, is there like a, a taxonomy that you formulated? Um, for like the type of, of, of beliefs that people hold that, uh, that are challengeable.
0: Hmm. Maybe at the highest level, I suppose I might divvy it up into two, ga- te- two categories, supernatural and natural hmm. generally, but that's not to say that you can't, I mean, you can use this approach for either category and technically the, the, the mechanics of it are the same you want to identify what they think is true, why they think it's true and how they're so sure that those are good reasons. But it does seem like supernatural claims, and maybe this is just because I've talked to a lot of people here in Texas who bring that up and they don't want to talk about politics or climate change or, or social issues. The supernatural claims tend to be really, really straightforward. Once you do enough of these where you can cruise through them pretty quickly and, and leave a person with a pebble in their shoe. And and maybe it's just because I haven't had a lot of practice try as I might to get people to talk about political topics or or natural real world things, the stock market, whatever. Uh, that, that I guess is technically probably the same way that you'd go about doing it, but the reasons and the method that people are coming to those conclusions might be a little bit different. So I might just divvy it up from that point at the start, but um, technically, I guess the way that you would go about having these conversations would be the same. I'm, I'm hoping that people who have experience in those areas who are learning about street epistemology might intentionally go to rallies and protests and gatherings where people are talking about important things and then engaging with people and, and fine-tuning this approach for those scenarios. But I guess right at the top, I'd probably maybe split it in that way. And um,
1: like kind of like bifurcating uh, the, the supernatural one further, uh, two you already mentioned. Um, there's one that people who are sort of um, like they they have their system. They're well versed in their system. They're well versed in their belief, and then other peoples who are who are not. Um, and then and then those kind of engender different different conversations. People push back on you or whatever. Um, is there uh, Was the was the question I was going for? Um, Yeah, is there any other kind of ways you can break down that 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 taxonomy of the the supernatural?
0: I mean, I suppose you can go by topic, but what's really neat is when you whether you're talking about ghosts or everything happens for a reason, karma, my god is real, whatever. Even on the other side, the other category, I suppose, of of natural topics. um, Once you identify the method that a person is using to conclude that they have a good reason to justify a high degree of confidence in that what they think is true is true once you've isolated the the method if they can discover that that is not a good method for being confident that something is true you may have likely kicked out the leg of a stool that holds up hundreds of other views that they have that's what i love so much about about street epistemology is that we don't get wrapped up in doctrine and and what they think is true, or blood transfusions with Jehovah's Witnesses, or mm-hmm. or 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 the facts, you know, the, the actual factual claims that people are making. When you start identifying the method and probing to see if it's reliable, lots of other beliefs can fall away once a person discovers that might not be the best way to go about concluding that this is true. And that's what I love about SE so much, street epistemology, is that it's it seems to be so efficient.
1: Mm-hmm. Like one thing that came to mind is is or like an interest I have is seeing like the content of someone's belief, like their map, and how that itself maps over to their their emotional reality, their felt senses, their and their their intention. Um, and there's something I don't know if uh, you're familiar with this, but the moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, it's essentially this sort of like this thought soup of, of all these different ideas mushed together and the central, and their belief is like the central goal to life is to be happy and feel good. And they have this like God on demand, uh, theology, uh, to do so. Um, it's not really well thought out. It's just taken from all these different sources, but you can argue, I guess, that the intention behind that is just to kind of feel good, right? Be therapeutic, to use religious, spiritual, uh, if you will, to feel good about oneself. Um... Did you put any thought or any focus on like a, a taxonomy of intention behind these these supernatural
0: beliefs? Mm. Yeah, very often people will say that they'll talk about the benefits that the belief gives them. I'm fi- I, I'm happier because I think that this is true. My life my life has more meaning because I think that this is true. When I encounter folks like that, and I usually will ask some questions to make sure that this is what we're talking about, but generally I'll ask them if if it's more valuable to them for the belief to give them benefit or comfort for example than it actually to be true. And sometimes people will will admit yeah like it's more important for me to be getting benefit from this than it actually being true. When I do mm-hmm. encounter a person like that and I hope this this is this is responding to your question but um it's one thing that i like to do is ask a person if they know of anybody that is able to get through difficult times that is able to find meaning in life but doesn't think that their god is real for example they don't think that the supernatural belief that you do that you think is true they don't go that far they yet they can still find themselves getting through difficult times and, and finding finding happiness and they very often do know folks like that so what I tend to do there is ask how they think that person is managing without the the ancillary, perhaps ancillary belief. And sometimes the discussion, the acknowledgement and the, the subsequent discussion that there are other, there are people who are able to manage and get through hard times without believing in something supernatural could help a person reflect on their own views. And why do I have to, you know, why, why do I think that this God is real? Could I could I be one of those people who doesn't need to have the belief? And that discussion alone could even cause a person to back off on their on their view.
1: Mm-hmm. So so we're at the hour mark now. Um, another question I had for you, maybe we can end off with this, or if there's something else, Bernie, you want to talk about, we can end off with that. But uh, uh, is there any been sort of like um, countervailing force in the noosphere? Like, is there any like uh, apologists that are like arming themselves to, to defend against you guys?
0: Yeah. There has been, every once in a while we hear of somebody who they'll, I don't know, they, they might complain about a video or break, you know, do a little breakdown video and point out things that they have problems with. Or we even have communities that we've established for people to go to to complain or raise their criticisms of this approach because we do want to hear that we don't think that this is like the perfect system that's the b and cure all to all of all of the ills that humanity faces we want people to surface issues that they have and it's been good like over the last several years the criticisms that we've been receiving and, and they haven't been like that huge, but like there was a, a common criticism was, you know, you're, you're having these really good conversations with people, but then you're just shaking their hand and leaving them. You know, you should at least give them yeah. a way to contact you. Like, like that's like standard now. You, you wouldn't think about engaging in a conversation with somebody where you're challenging their views and you're not giving them a way to contact you because of the, the, uh, the, the, obligation that I mentioned before. So, but yeah, there are, there are some people I think who are threatened by it because You know, it kind of goes back to the what, why, how a lot of people, apologists, like you mentioned, they're very versed in the what they can, they've memorized verses. They can tell you exactly when something was written and the exact interpretation of that. And here's the meaning of those words. And this is the message that you should be walking away. They're very focused on what, and as I mentioned, we're interested in the why and the how, and that could be pretty threatening to somebody who's made a career Out of explaining to people that here's the meaning, here's the message, and this is what you should be believing. Street epistemology is 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 a near end run around all of that stuff. We go right to the heart of of why they're thinking that this is true and how they're concluding that that those are good reasons. So yeah, that 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 is a little bit of a threat to some people. But what's interesting is, and I've kind of noticed this the last half of this year, where people who believe in supernatural things are well they, they say that they're doing this I haven't seen a really any really good videos of this yet I'm hoping that I do see some where there are theists who are purporting to be doing conversations where they're using street epistemology so it seems like they're actually adopting it and maybe even trying to incorporate it into their own approaches which I'm loving like if they stick with the like the the steps you know for lack of a better word, I really don't see how how somebody who's taking a hard stance on a supernatural claim could perform street epistemology with other people making similar claims and not turn it around on themselves. That was that was the uh, one of the wonderful discoveries of this was, oh my gosh, like this is not only a tool to challenge people, but I could be using this in my own life on my own views, and mm. and I, I do think that anyone who's a critic of it, if they were to really learn it and practice it, you know, unless unless you're believing something that's not true and you really suspect that it's probably not true, yeah, I guess maybe I could see why you might be a little bit turned off by it. But if you think you have the truth, it should certainly stand up to the scrutiny of a few street epistemology type questions. Hmm. And, and um, then this, this may be like
1: a straw man argument or an uncharitable one, but uh, is do uh, you ever get the criticism like, uh, oh, shoot, epistemologists just kind of like go after the low hanging fruit, um, and you avoid sort of the the more sophisticated uh, apologists or you know people that are reversed and maybe an alternative uh, epistemologies?
0: That's a common complaint, and it uh, it kind of irks me honestly because. I don't shy away from having conversations with people who are, who are experts on it, but what tends to happen is what I, what I was talking about before, where they want to keep focusing on, on doctrine and that type of thing, where I'm interested in, in, um, in justifications and method. And it's a little frustrating too, because if I run into somebody on the trail and they proclaim to be a hundred percent sure that their God is real, for example, I could only go off of what they're telling me. You know, in their view, they are justified in having that that belief. And it's a little frustrating when I see a comment or somebody saying, Well, they weren't prepared or they weren't ready for it, or you should really talk to somebody who is can defend the faith better. And that just that just seems kind of disrespectful to the person that I was just talking to. If I were to if I were to ask them if they felt that they were confident competent in in defending their view i would guess the overwhelming majority of the people that i would speak to would say yes and it's it could be a little it could be a little frustrating to he, hear people just dismiss folks and here's the, here's the other side of this too is that professional believers don't tend to worry about people believing these things they, they only get worried when those folks are being challenged on it and then they don't seem to be doing a good enough job to defend it. And, mm. and that double standard, uh, it was not lost on me. Right, right.
1: So I think we might end it there unless there's something uh, burning you want to talk about or close off on?
0: Yeah, maybe we could just end it on, on one thing that I really saw in this year was other people going out across the world and engaging in talks, whether they were recorded or not, and having conversations where they're using this method and then they're sharing their examples, either either by uploading them to YouTube or posting about them on the, on the Discord server that we have or uh, the, the Facebook groups. And we, we're learning so much about this approach and we're evolving it drastically, Like we need to take another look at the street epistemology guide pretty soon to make sure that it's current with where we're at with this approach, because it really has changed a lot. And that's largely because of people from all varieties, all backgrounds, professionals, experts in certain areas, or even just your average person with a general interest in wanting to help people. They're going out and having really good talks and then sharing what they've learned. And that's really encouraging to see. Yeah, it's
1: pretty cool. It's like um, you need almost a method in order to kind of manage how the method is evolving.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, here that's there's a little bit of a challenge because we're like, you know, there, there's there are no leaders of this movement. Even even the fellow that started this is is sort of washed his hands of it. Is too strong of a word because he's very excited about what's happening in the community, but there are no leaders there are no popes there there's nobody saying this is what this method is however maybe soon we might actually be reaching the point where we need to nail down a few things and say you know if you're spending a lot of time on what the person believes and you're arguing with them and giving them facts that doesn't quite make the cut of what street epistemology is there might be there, we might be reaching the point where we need to nail down a few things but we don't want to buckle it down too tight where we lose the the experimentation and the excitement and the enthusiasm that we seem to be seeing now, right, right. So that that proper
1: balance, and uh, I also appreciate how I, like everything's open source and open, you know, for the public. It's not like some secret esoteric society that you guys are operating in, unless I'm I'm unaware of it.
0: <laughs> no, we want to keep it really open. We want other people to learn it, including people that might hold views that we disagree with.
1: Excellent, excellent. So where can um, people find more about you or more about the the movement in general?
0: One of the best places a person can go to is the streetepistemology.com website. It uh, has uh, links to all sorts of resources, including people who are uploading videos. There's also a playlist. If you're a video person, and one of the best ways to see this approach in action is to watch a video or two, we have a playlist. So if you go to tinyurl.com forward slash SE latest releases, you will see playlists that we update on a near daily basis, whenever there's something new related to SE, we dump it in that playlist. That's a really good way to keep your finger on the pulse of this of this approach. Excellent. And
1: I'll, I'll reach out to you, and maybe you can send me some links so I can include it on the show notes. Yeah, for sure. So, thanks so much
0: for coming on, man. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you so much, and I loved your article too. I uh, I would say at least a half a dozen people messaged me about it and said, did you see what this person was talking about over here? <laughs> wow, <laughs> wow. epistemology and so forth. And it was a great article. And it's nice to see people outside of the SE community noticing what we're doing and and seeing the potential impact that it could have on our culture. And I really appreciate you writing that article. All right. Thank you. Thank you.
1: And I, I can imagine how it's um it's interesting too from seeing uh, how you guys are perceived from a different perspective. Um. So that being said, uh, after I press record, we might disconnect. And if that's the case, maybe we can just hop on Skype to to debrief for about a couple minutes. Sounds good. Um, All right. So until next time, keep exploring.